If you would, please turn with me to the book of Exodus, if you've got a Bible. Exodus is the second book in the Bible. If you're using one of the Pew Bibles, which, our apologies, the Pew Bibles are only on the first three rows. We're ordering more, don't worry. We're still kind of moving into our new sanctuary. Exodus 3 is where we'll be today, verses 1 through 12 is where we'll spend most of our time. Let's give attention to God's word. Now Moses was keeping the flock of his father-in-law Jethro, the priest of Midian. And he led his flock to the west side of the wilderness and came to Horeb, the mountain of God. And the angel of the Lord appeared to him in a flame of fire out of the midst of a bush. He looked, and behold, the bush was burning, but it was not consumed. And Moses said, I will turn aside to see this great sight, why the bush is not burned. When the Lord saw that he turned aside to see, God called to him out of the bush, Moses, Moses. And he said, here I am. Then he said, do not come near, take your sandals off your feet. For the place on which you are standing is holy ground. And he said, I am the God of your father, the God of Abraham, the God of Isaac, and the God of Jacob. And Moses hid his face, for he was afraid to look at God. Then the Lord said, I have surely seen the affliction of my people who are in Egypt and have heard their cry because of their taskmasters. I know their sufferings. And I have come down to deliver them out of the hand of the Egyptians and to bring them up out of that land to a good and spacious land, a land flowing with milk and honey to the place of the Canaanites, the Hittites, the Amorites, the Perizzites, the Hivites and the Jebusites. And now, behold, the cry of the people of Israel has come to me. And I have also seen the oppression with which the Egyptians oppress them. Go. I am sending you to Pharaoh that you may bring out my people, the children of Israel, out of Egypt. But Moses said to God, who am I that I should go to Pharaoh and bring the children of Israel out of Egypt? He said, I will be with you. And this shall be the sign for you that I have sent you. When you have brought the people out of Egypt, you shall serve God on this mountain. Let's pray together. God in heaven, we ask for your supernatural sight and insight that you would open the eyes of our hearts, incline our ears to you, help us to hear you, and change us from the inside out. May the words of my mouth and the meditations of our hearts be pleasing in your sight, O God, our rock and our redeemer. We ask it in Jesus' name. Amen. December 7th, 1941, a day that will live in infamy, right? uh, If you've responded to that, you know that that was the day that the Japanese bombed Pearl Harbor. And it's uh, popularly thought that Admiral Yamamoto, the Japanese, uh, an admiral in the Japanese Navy, said, at least according to Hollywood, said, we have awakened the sleeping giant. Now... Whether or not he actually said that, it's a great line, and it was true. Uh, Prior to that point, you remember maybe that 
The war began in 1939, in earnest at least, as the empires of Germany and Japan uh, began overtaking their neighbors. Um, and the United States did not get into the war. We did not engage in the conflict. Our allies did. Great Britain did. France, of course, was involved because Germany was overrunning them. But we stayed out. Um, we were, at that point, uh, fairly isolationist, and there's some, some good things about that. We, ne- we didn't necessarily want to get involved in what we thought was a, a war that was not our own. Um, our people, our, our country at that point, didn't want to engage in war. Uh, and you probably would rather have to go to war than want to go to war. And so, whatever the reasons, we stayed out until 1941. Uh, And when the Japanese bombed us, uh, Congress then declared war and we went. And it was two and a half years later uh, that we landed on the beaches of Normandy, what would be called D-Day. And it was a year after that in 1945, Clay's going to, am I getting on my dates right? Thanks, Clay. Um, That we effectively ended the war by bombing Japan uh, with two atomic bombs. And so uh, Japan had indeed wakened, uh, woken up the sleeping giant. Now, God and America are not the same. I, you know, I'm not going to make that comparison, but there is a sense, right? And of course, the main difference is this, that God is not asleep. Uh, God does not need to be woken up. But we read at the end of last week, right, at the end of chapter 2, we read um, when, when things look their worst, right? God's people, just to remind you what's happened so far, God's people are enslaved. They've been in Egypt for 400 years and slaves for most of that time. And Moses, the guy that they hoped would be the deliverer, is actually banished to Midian. He has to run away uh, because he took matters into his own hands. And so things don't look very good. And so the people are crying out because of their slavery. And what we read last week was uh, chapter 2, verse 24. God heard their groaning. God remembered his covenant. God saw the people and God knew. Those are kind of the, the giant is awake verses. Right. Those are the verses up until that point. God has been in the background. He's been behind the scenes working. Uh, His will is taking place. But what those verses tell us is that God is about to pull the curtain back and that God is about to step in. Right. Just as America finally stepped into the war and brought it to its effective end. God is about to step in and do something, uh, do something amazing to rescue his people. And again, that's not because God was asleep or God was indifferent or was like, oh, yeah, I forgot you guys were in Egypt. Let me go. Sorry about that. He didn't. That's that's not the God of the Bible. OK, but he was in the background. But now God steps through the curtain out onto center stage and we get to see him do this in Exodus three. So we're going to look at this in three ways, how God reveals himself. First, he reveals his holiness Uh, Then he reveals his compassion. And then finally, he promises his presence. God reveals his holiness. Um, 
If you were to imagine how you would think something amazing was about to happen, if you had to guess uh, that something momentous was about to take place, where would you put it? Probably somewhere like Washington, D.C., right, or New York City. I mean, where where powerful people are, where influential people are. That's how that's how big things happen in world history. Rome, right? Beijing. This is this is where world moving events happen, right? They don't happen in Clanton, do they? They don't they don't. They don't happen on the west side of the of the Sinai Peninsula out in the wilderness in no man's land. Surely that's not where big things happen. And yet, right, when we read, we read what Moses is doing. He's keeping his father-in-law's flock out in no man's land. I mean, if you want, if you want the definition of washed up, of spoiled potential... You could just take a look at the first 80 years of Moses' life. Right, here's a man who was raised in Pharaoh's house. Right, Acts, the book of Acts in the New Testament tells us that he was raised in the wisdom of Egypt. So he was well educated. He had the best that learning could offer at that time. He, he had connections, right? He was, he was the son or the grandson of a Pharaoh. He was the adopted son of Pharaoh's daughter. So he was a prince in Egypt. A well-connected, well-educated individual, right? Uh, and he was a passionate guy, right? He had a desire to do good, right? He went out to see the affliction of his people, and when he did, he just had to take action. And so what did he do? He killed an Egyptian guard. And Pharaoh discovers it, and he has to run off into the desert. And now here he is, 40 years later, 80 years old, Keeping someone else's sheep out in the wilderness. Looking, looking for pasture land for a flock of stubborn animals that doesn't even belong to him. I mean, humanly speaking, what a waste. What, a, what an example of, of a wasted life, right? That's what, that's what this looks like here on Horeb. For Moses, this doesn't seem to be very promising. And this is really a good place for us to kind of ponder our own situation. Uh, God is clearly not, as one writer says, God is clearly not in our kind of hurry. Do you hear hear me say that Moses, at least as as far as we can know from the Bible's account, Moses is, is approaching 80 years old. Most of us in this room are not 80, right? Um, and yet, Moses has not made something of his life. In fact, when he tried to make something of his life, it was a royal flop. Huge failure, right? The, the, um, the message of the first two chapters of Exodus is almost one of, is really one of frustration. Uh, it's one of, Man's strength cannot manage to accomplish much. Because when Moses acts in his own strength, it causes him great pain. And so we should disabuse ourselves of the notion that God will only use us when, we're, when we've made ourselves ready. Right, it's pretty clear 
I think that Moses, Moses isn't even really looking for God. Who knows if he's just kind of resigned himself like, hey, this is the way life is going to go. Right? So he's not out there hunting. Uh, he's not out there seeking God. He's not there, hey, God, I'm ready when you are. Just, you know, when, when you want to put the weapon in my hand, we'll go. Nope. And yet, God comes to Moses. Right? God meets Moses when Moses least expect it, least expects it. Uh, and so we can say this, while it is good, it is a good thing, it is a right thing to make the most of your short lifespan. Most of us, I would imagine, maybe 80, 90, possibly 100, but that's a, that's a short span of time. And I, and I think we would, it would serve us well, most of us probably aren't asking the question often enough, what kind of legacy am I leaving behind? How do I want to be remembered by my children and my grandchildren if God should so desire to give them to me? And so that's an important question to ask. But I think what this text is telling us most of all is that God is happy to use when God sees good and well fit to. That God is not in our kind of hurry. And so we want to rest in the patient, perfectly timed providence of God. Because like I said, it's not even clear that Moses is looking for God. Moses, for all intents and purposes, is probably forgotten. He thinks he's been forgotten. And maybe you think you've been forgotten. Maybe you think you're past your useful shelf life. Right? Maybe you think because of the way that you've lived your life or how old you are, eh, God's got nothing for me to do. But here, on the far side of a scrubby mountain in the Sinai Peninsula, God shows up. When he's least expected. And in a way that's unexpected, you notice that he appears to Moses as a fire in a burning bush. It's a little weird, right? Uh, What exactly is going on with this uh, holy God in the burning bush? Well, so it says that the angel of the Lord. Now, um, the angel of the Lord ends up the Lord himself. So this isn't Gabriel. This isn't Michael. This isn't some other messenger. This is actually the Lord himself taking on the, a form as he breaks into human history. And we're going to come back to that. And he's a fire. He's, a fl- he's flames of fire. Now, in Exodus, in the book of Exodus, fire is a symbol of God's presence. It's a symbol of his holiness. Um, we have, of course... Three boys, and um, it could be 110 degrees outside, but if I say, hey, boys, do you want to make a fire? We have a fire pit. If I say, hey, we're going to make a fire, they're like, yes. Now, they don't make it much past the lighting stage. You know, like I'm sitting there, like, you know, like they're gathering around, and they're seeing my frustrated attempts at getting the TP to stand up. And, yeah, it's not pretty. And eventually they walk off and get bored until I actually manage to make the thing burn. Then they come back. Right? So you know that there's a certain fascination to fire. That there's this kind of, uh, there's, 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 it's inviting, but it's also threatening. There's something about fire. And this, this captures the idea of God's holiness well, um, because God's presence is inviting, but it's also dangerous. And this is one of those ways that God doesn't really fit kind of into our neat definitions. Most of us want it one way or the other. Either you want a God who is so approachable 
that we end up kind of minimizing him to this like doting grandfatherly figure who's like, sure, come on, whatever. Right. Or we want it all the other way, that God is so unapproachably holy and other that he's too distant. Right. He's the angry volcano just waiting to swallow us up. And what we see in this episode with Moses is that God, yes, is holy, but that he's also approachable. He is inviting, and he's also dangerous. Just look at what he says to Moses, right? Moses sees that this bush is caught on fire. Now, that altogether is not that odd. Maybe a lightning bolt struck the shrub, and it caught on fire. What's bizarre is that the bush is not burning. Like, it's not, it's not consuming. The fire's not going anywhere, nor is the bush. It's a, it's a, it's a sight to behold. And so Moses, Moses pulls aside to go check this out. And God invites him. He says, Moses, Moses. And Moses, again, a little probably, probably taken aback because now there's a voice talking to him out of this flaming bush. Okay, so I want you I want you to imagine how weird this would be for you. Um, You're doing what you've been doing for the past 40 years. You're walking the flock up to a, a pasture to eat. And then you see a bush that is caught on fire, but it's not. It's not burning up. It's not being consumed. And so you get close to kind of check it out and be like, did I see that right? And then the bush starts talking. Or maybe we should say the fire starts talking, right? Yeah, you would be weirded out by that. Okay? I would be weirded out by that. And so, God calls Moses in. And Moses responds the way that his ancestors responded before him. He says, here I am. Literally, behold me. I'm here. And God says, take off your sandals, for the place that you're standing on is holy ground. Uh, So, this is a good place to talk about holiness and what it means, what what exactly is holiness? Um, in the ancient world and still today, there are places that we call, there, there are things we would call holy ground, right? If you go to temples in Tibet or um, in, mostly, in the, mostly in the East where they you know, still believe in religion, um, they'll, they'll say, no, this is holy ground. You ask, why is it holy? Like, well, it just is. Holy, right? That's the name we put on it. But that's not the case with the God of the Bible. The reason this place is holy is because God himself is there. Right? So the reason this particular shrub on this particular mountainside and the dirt around it is holy is not because there's a temple there. It's not because Moses said it was holy. It's because God is there. And so like the fire in the bush, right? the, the, the fire, the fire isn't doesn't need the bush need the shrub it's not consuming the shrub it 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 has its own fuel it's self-existent in the same way so is god's holiness god doesn't need us and that challenges the notions of some who would say that that god needs our service or god needs us to make him complete that's not the case God is self-existent. He does not, this, this fire, though it is burning in the shrub, doesn't need the shrub to exist, right? It exists of its own volition. God is, um, God's holiness, the word holy means set apart. It means distinct or separate. And in this case, God has set apart this particular place by his presence because he's about to set Moses 
apart. And so it's interesting that this holy fire is burning in the midst of an ordinary shrub, but it chooses not to destroy it. In a normal case, in a normal fire, the bush would be gone. It would burn up. But not in this case. God. And so. What this what is this telling us? What is this? Where is this taking us? God is beyond our control. And even beyond our understanding, our total understanding. He does not need our fuel. And he does not fit into our mold. He is both dangerous and inviting at the same time. And this is what makes God exceedingly trustworthy. Because he's not a God who fits our program. He is a God who makes us fit his. Right? He's the one who sets the terms. Moses can't just walk right up to the bush. God has to invite him and has to set the terms. He says, take your shoes off. This is holy ground. So God is the one who allows the approach. Martin Luther wrote, uh, wrote a hymn, Psalm 130. Um, he did this with a number of hymns, but the, the, last, the last verse, the third verse of that hymn says, What though I wait the live long night until the dawn appeareth, my heart still trusteth in his might, it doubteth not nor feareth. Do thus, O ye of Israel's seed, ye of the Spirit born indeed, and wait till God appeareth. Moses is not looking for God. He's not expecting God. And yet God reveals his holiness to Moses. God is about to act. He's about to do something big. And then he reveals his compassion. Look again at verse 6. Moses, Moses, here I am. Don't come near. Take your sandals off your feet. And then he says this. God identifies himself to Moses. God said, I am the God of your father. The God of Abraham, the God of Isaac, and the God of Jacob. Now, imagine that uh, Neil's not here this morning. You can actually pray for Neil because his back is causing him great pain. But if you know Neil, you know that he has four kids, Ivy, Clay, Zach, and Bailey. And imagine that you meet Neil uh, just out in the community somewhere um, at a restaurant. And you introduce yourself. You say, hey, I'm Kevin. And he says... Hey, I'm the father of Ivy, Clay, Bailey, and Zach. They're like, okay, well, that's kind of weird. Um, right, my name's Kevin. Right, I am the father of Ivy, Clay, Bailey, and Zach. You begin to think, okay, this guy really identifies himself with his kids. Like, maybe at an unhealthy level. We probably want to talk about that. So it's interesting that the first thing that, the first way that God identifies himself to Moses is not with any of the other names that he used in Genesis. I am Elohim. I am God Almighty. I am God the Provider, the Lord the Provider. All of, all of these different titles and names of all of the ones that God has in the Old Testament, he uses his people. When he comes to Moses and identifies himself to Moses, he says, I am the God of Abraham, the God of Isaac, and the God of Jacob. Why do you think he does that? Because he identifies himself with his people. He is so, he has, he has so bound himself up in the life of his people that that is how he identifies. That is the name, that is the title that he gives to Moses. And it's a history that Moses knows. 
Because as soon as Moses hears that, now he realizes who he's, who he's dealing with. Now he hides his face and he's afraid. He remembers the stories. He remembers how God walked with Abraham, how God walked with Isaac, how God walked with Jacob. He remembers the promises that God made. He says, I am the God of your father. I wonder, I don't know that Moses' parents are still alive at this point, probably not. But does he remember the quiet faith of his father and mother as, as they laid him as an infant in the river and sent him down? Right. I am the God of your father. And so Moses is taken back and he realizes who it is that he is dealing with. And what God is saying is, I'm here to make good on my promises. I'm here to make good on my promises to all. I'm I'm here to fulfill the history that, you know, so well. And then he and then he keeps going. Then the Lord said, I have surely seen the affliction of my people. Their cry I have heard. I know their sufferings. Right? These are echoes of what happened at the end of chapter 2. God is not distant. He's not indifferent. He hasn't forgotten. He is moving into the suffering of his people. Right? That's, friend, that's the God of the Bible. Do you, do you have a God? Do you worship a God who moves Toward your suffering, not away from it. Who moves into relieve your slavery, not leave you in it until you get yourself out. That's the story of Exodus. God moves into, he parts the curtain of human history and steps down into what he has made so that he can pull his people out of slavery. Right? That is what God is doing here. He's, he's saying, I know what's going on. I'm stepping in to deal with it. And that's important because Moses had already tried to step in and deal with it. Do you remember? Moses had tried to flex his muscles and do it himself. And he ended up in the wilderness. God's saying, these are my people. I'm going to take care of it. I'm going to step in. I'm going to deliver. I'm going to do the work. I'm going to bring them out of that land of slavery, and I'm going to bring them into a good and wide land, a spacious place, a rich land. Now, we're going to, we're going to deal with this in, the, in a couple of uh, weeks. This, is, this phrase, right, the, the place of the Hittites, the Amorites, the Perizzites, the Hivites, the Jebusites, like maybe that sounds like a disease to you or like a series of bugs, right? These are the people who are inheriting Palestine, right? So God's people are over here in Egypt. Moses is right here in Sinai. And God's saying, go get them, bring them here, and then together we're going to go into the promised land. Right. We're going to go. I'm going to give you the land where all these people are dwelling. Uh, we, we need to deal with that. Right. Because Moses, what, what Israel is going to do is displace and kill those people. And they're going to do it because God told them to do it. And that's one of those thorny problems of scripture that you have to deal with. Right. That's one of those things that people, maybe you this morning, right, one of the objections you have against the Bible and against Christianity is, how can God condone the slaughter of those people? And there's a, that's a good long answer 
One way is that he promised back in Genesis 17, he promised Abraham, I'm going to give you this land, but the iniquity of the Amorites is not yet complete. Basically, the sin of the people who are living there is not yet full. Your people, you, your people are going to be in a foreign land for 400 years because I'm going to be patient with these people. I'm giving them a time frame. So for four, all right, so if, if, you're, if your picture of God's anger and wrath is that he just snaps and he's ready to come in and do great violence, you need to consider the time stretch of the Old Testament. God gives these people 400 years. That's a long time. Okay? Um, and so God is saying, and we'll deal with that more in the weeks to come, but God is, God is going to give them that land. So he's rescuing them from slavery and he's going to carry them into the good land. Now, Tupac Secure in the 90s, um, one of the, it wasn't as popular a song, but uh, he rapped, Only God Can Judge Me. Only God Can Judge Me. That's probably a phrase maybe you're familiar with, you've heard it said, you've seen it tattooed, etc. Only God Can Judge Me. Let me, I won't deal primarily with whether that only is true or not, we'll kind of set that aside, but when... When you say that, only God can judge me. What do you typically mean when you say that, right? Usually you say that when other people, right, when, when, the, when the haters are hating, right? Uh, when other people are saying things about you you don't like, only God can judge me, right? It's, kind of, it's, almost, a, it's, almost, a, it's almost a sign of snobbery, right? You kind of lift your chin up like, only God can judge me. Friend, does that, does that statement bring you comfort, I want you to think about that for a second. What you're saying, if you say that. When God says, I see the affliction of my people. I hear their cries for mercy. I know their suffering. And I'm coming down to rescue them. That's only good news to a certain set of people. In the same way... That the sounds of American engines over the Japanese island was only a welcome sound to American POWs. It was not a welcome sound to the Japanese, to their Japanese captors. Friend, God is going to judge you. And he is going to judge me. The question is, is that really good news for you? I mean, when you look at when you look at the span of your life, when you consider your day in, day out, is it good news that God is coming in judgment? It was not good news to the Egyptians, and it would not be good news to the Canaanites. And it wasn't always necessarily good news to God's people. They, too, would sin against a holy God. Maybe you've walked across a river or a creek before and, I remember doing this as a kid. There was a, a creek that ran kind of back behind our street, and we would go down there. Uh, and this happened every time, even though my parents told me to not do it, right? Every time we would go down and play around the creek, right? You're making your way across, and you're always looking for the rocks, right? You want to look for the rocks, and you, right, and you would see a rock, and it was a good, big, solid rock. It looked like, man, that's one I want to put my foot on. And yet as soon as you put your foot on it, what would happen, right? It would... Slip. It would, it would, 
it would lose its footing, it would lose its weight, it would shift, and into the water you would go. Like, I always went home with wet shoes. And I always went home with wet shoes because I judged poorly. I looked at a rock and said, that's going to hold me. That's going to keep me up. That rock is trustworthy. And I was wrong. And so, friend, my question is, are you trusting the right rock? Are you, are you putting your foot in a secure place? Are you in the promise or are you outside of it? Another way to ask it, are you with Moses? If you were in this story, are you with Moses or are you against him? When God says, I'm coming down to rescue them, rescue my people, that's good news if you're the people. But if you're Egypt, we're going to see that that is terrible news. And there will be blood and there will be fire. Are you standing on the right rock? And then God promises his presence. He tells Moses, I don't know why the ESV translates translates it come. It's, it's actually go. Verse 10, go, I'm sending you to Pharaoh and you are bringing out my people. He almost gives it as a certainty. You're going to go and here's what you're going to do. Right? He doesn't ask for a resume. He doesn't say, hey, Moses, listen, here's a good idea. I think this is Right. He and Moses don't work together on this. Like, all right, here's what I think we should do. Right. Like he's drawing a line in the sand. Like here are the X's, here are the O's. Like they don't do that. All God says after he declares his holiness, after he declares his compassion and his love for his people, he says, go. I'm sending you go rescue my people. Get them out of there. Right. So the command is pretty clear. It's not given in a way that can say, right, that, that there can be any doubt about how this is going to how this is going to turn out. And what does Moses say? This is this is actually the first of four objections we're going to look at over uh, this week and, and next week. The first of four objections. Moses says, who, who am I? It's probably not born out of humility. Moses was a humble man, but that's probably not what's going on in Moses's heart. Moses is probably scared to death. Right. He remembers the last time he was in Egypt. And yeah, that king's dead, but he tried to rally support the last time he was in Egypt. And the people looked at him and said, not a chance. Moses remembers his track record. Who am I that I should go to Pharaoh? Who am I that I should bring the people out? And isn't it interesting what what God does not say to Moses? He does not say, Moses, man, you're a great guy. You're going to get it done. Don't worry about it. You got the skills, right? You were raised in Egypt. You know how to talk the talk, right? You're a passionate guy. You like to see action happen. Don't worry. You'll be fine. You'll be fine, right? Moses, God God doesn't even address who Moses is. Moses is asking the wrong question. Moses says, who am I? God says, I'm going with you. He doesn't even answer Moses' question. He ignores it completely. Because it doesn't matter who Moses is. It doesn't matter Moses' skill set. It doesn't matter Moses' experience. God has called Moses, and God is going to go with Moses. He says, I will be with you. And we get tripped up in the same way. 
Who am I? I I can't do that. Right? You guys who are counselors at Raleigh's place, you're gonna you're gonna have these campers in front of you, and you're gonna have those moments where you're like, Who am I? Who am I that I get the who who put me in charge of you're going to question the wisdom of the people in t- above you, right? Who put me in charge of all these little kids? Who am I? We ask that same question when we're put in conversation, when we get into conversations um, about Jesus, right? Who, who am I? And that's a good, that is a good question to ask. You're nobody. Let me just go ahead and give you the good news, right? Um, you're nobody. But you know what God says to Moses? I will be with you. It's not Moses who's going to bring the people out. It's God who's going to bring the people out. He's just happy to use Moses. In fact, it's him who's been getting Moses ready for this the whole time. Moses has a lot of experience shepherding other people's sheep. And so now he gets to go back to Egypt and shepherd not his own people, God's people. God's sheep. Moses knows what it means to work for somebody else. And so God says, I will be with you. And here's the sign. Here's the proof. You're going to bring all these people back and you're going to worship me on this mountain. Right? The text says, serve me on this mountain. Um, the words for serve and worship go together in the Old Testament. To serve is to worship. Now, here's the beauty of this. Israel has been serving in hard service Egypt for 400 years. God says, I'm about to bring you out and you're going to serve me. I'm saving you to worship me. I'm rescuing you from your slave masters that you've been worshiping, that you've been working for. And now I'm bringing you into the freedom of serving me. I am a better Master, I am a better king. Moses, this is the sign. You're going to get to this mountain and you're not going to see a burning bush. You're going to see a burning mountain. God's presence is going to blow up Mount Sinai. This is the same place. Horeb and Sinai, the same place. They're going to come back here and it's going to look like a volcano and God's going to meet with his people. They're going to see the fire again. All right. So. Let's tile this together. Who's the real rescuer here? It's interesting that it's the angel of the Lord. You see that word in all caps, L-O-R-D, Lord. We're going to talk about that next week, what that name means. It's the angel of the Lord, but then it's also God. God himself is speaking. So God has taken a form to represent himself to humans. He's entered into human history in a form that Moses understands. Does that sound familiar? Thousands of years from this point, God is going to take on a form again. He's going to part the curtains of history again, and he's going to step in to intervene. Not to rescue his people from physical slavery, but to rescue his people from spiritual slavery. And he could do that any number of ways he chooses to do that. And maybe that would be a good question for us to ask. God, why why wait so long? I mean, surely God could have rescued um, one of the 
I'll use a, a, a Lord of the Rings illustration, even though I've been told that most of you don't get those. It's okay. Right. So my, one of my friends, the reason he hated The Hobbit, A, because he was a jock. Um, I forgive him for that. Right. But in the movie, that, or in the movie, oh, it was a horrible movie. In the book, The Hobbit, okay, uh, when, when the heroes are trapped in a tree by the bad guys, eagles come and rescue them. Okay? That was The Hobbit, right, Fred? Okay, good. Now, my friend, uh, my friend Davey, who's a jock, he hated that because he was like, well, why don't the eagles just carry them to where they've got to go and they can go ahead and finish it off right then? Like, end the story right there. And maybe that's how you want to look at this. Like, man, why has God waited so long to do something? Maybe you think that about your own life. Why has God waited so long to intervene to do something? We just sang it, right, where he doesn't seem to be there. He seems to be absent. Why are you waiting? So Why wait until... The Roman Empire has everything under subjection in the year 0 A.D. Why? Probably a little bit before that, right? Why, why did Jesus come then? God, you promised when Adam and Eve broke the world that you were going to send someone to defeat the serpent. Why did you wait thousands of years to do it? How long, O oh Lord? And maybe it's because... God has something else he wants to accomplish. The story wouldn't be the same. In fact, if the eagles could just drop the hobbits off at Mount Doom and end the story right there, well, that'd be a lame story. And the storyteller wouldn't get a whole lot of glory for it. But if over the course of thousand years, man can show repeated failure at saving himself, maybe Just maybe God gets unimaginable glory for using a weak, 80-year-old, washed-up shepherd to to, to go back to Egypt and challenge the most powerful man with the most powerful army on the face of the planet and bring out a bunch of slave people. Maybe God gets more glory out of that. How unimaginable is the glory of God that, that he comes not... As a king with a scepter to crush his enemies, but as the son of a carpenter to be crushed on a cross. That in the, that in the most humiliating way possible and in the greatest act of rebellion, God is glorified in the majesty of his grace because he takes our shame and he takes our wickedness and he takes our weakness, and he saves the world. Maybe that's why it takes so long. And so, the angel of the Lord, Yahweh, the Lord himself, shows up, and he rescues his people. And that same person comes again later. Not as a flame, a fire, and a bush, but as a man named Jesus. And he's crushed by his enemies to save his enemies. He is the rock. If you're trying to figure out which, which way you want to cross the river, which way you don't want to get swept away by the current, there's lots of slippery rocks out there. 
And there's lots of rocks that look good. Lots of places you think might be a good place to put your foot. Put your foot on Jesus. Put your, put your life on Jesus. Rest in Him and in Him alone. Let's pray. God in heaven. Oh Lord, we thank you for your patience.